Welcome to this month's episode of Fraud Talk. I'm Mandy Moody, your host for our 50th episode. We are excited to celebrate this occasion by welcoming two of our favorite interviewees. We have John Gill, the VP of Education here at the ACFE, and Bruce Doris, the VP and Program Director here at the ACFE. And I brought both of them back because we did a podcast with them at the end of the year last year to kind of recap all of the latest news stories, and it did really well. And so I wanted to bring them back and kind of do a state of the industry, uh, where we're at, where we're going, and highlight a few news stories that have really hit home with a lot of us certified fraud examiners. So welcome to this 50th podcast, John. Thank you. And Bruce. Andy, it's always good to be back on the podcast. So let's start with Wells Fargo. This is still huge. It'll be huge probably uh, for a few months uh, to come. So Bruce, why don't you tell us what happened and also where we're at right now with it. We've got some fallout with whistleblowers. We've got fallout with states not wanting to do business with them anymore. Uh, Give me a little recap and let's dive into what we can predict is going to happen with that. More information is added almost daily in the various news cycles since it's been reported. It goes back several years, as we've learned now, with nearly 2 million fake accounts uh, during that time period, over 5,000 employees uh, that have fired since, I believe, 2011. And when you've got the CEO of this major bank hauled in front of Congress, not once but twice, it tells you that this is a big story. And it's a big story from a number of fronts. One, from the technical side of it and how they're setting this up and putting these accounts in place at the, you know, the very detailed bank level. But in a bigger scale, it's the, the corporate ethos within Wells Fargo and within corporations around the world, for that matter. I mean, so there's a lot that you know, we can learn from this as it, it progresses. When I was reading the story, I couldn't help but go back and think about the materials that we had in all of our fraud prevention courses and pieces in the Fraud Examiner's Manual, and it just hit on so many. And as fraud examiners, what we can do is look at what happened and then look at our own organizations, our own clients, and see, you know, what are the what happened here? How can we prevent this at our organization? Someone was not watching what was going on, and we don't know all the details at this point, but uh, looking and, and reading the reports from the workers, it, they felt like the, the goals that they were being given were unachievable. Mm-hmm. And so they had two choices. It was get constantly uh, reprimanded. Uh, some said they were even verbally harassed or mm-hmm. commit fraud and relieve that pressure. And so they picked the 5,300 of them pick, well, let's just commit fraud and relieve the pressure. So that's one thing I think companies should take a look, a hard look at the organization from the top down and what kind of signals are you sending to employees? What kind of pressures may, uh, they may be under that you may not be aware of. We're paying attention to the fraud that took place, but I want to watch and see what happens to those who did the right thing. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier about these whistleblowers, and you know, we're learning that even as early as 2009, that Wells Fargo may have known about this. 
And so this is information as it comes to light. We really want to follow and make sure that you know, this isn't repeated and that we can learn from this and, and teach about it. Do you think that it's enough for the public, for um, customers, for people affected, for, I guess, the people in general that he was grilled by Congress. He did relinquish his bonus. But as we saw with the financial crisis, no one was sentenced or no criminal charges were sought. Do you think it's enough what's happening or do you think there'll be a demand demand for more? It looks like there's going to be further investigation. I've read where Justice Department is looking into this pretty uh, intensely. It looks pretty damning on it right now when you've got at this high of a level uh, of someone with this head of this division who should have had knowledge of it and then walks out with, uh, from what I've read, $124 million from bonuses. That doesn't sit well with the public. It doesn't sit well with regulators. I think the public, I think those in the fraud anti-fraud community really are paying attention to this and want to make sure that regulators and the government are doing something about it. And it's a good opportunity right now, if you're trying to get management's attention, whether it's in your own company or it's one of your clients. So, and so we said, well, two of the things that you need to you know, point out impact on the bottom line, fraud mm-hmm. costs money. And so the losses that uh, Wells Fargo is going to face from this are going to be huge. Yeah. On top of that is the negative publicity, mm-hmm. and that can have a huge impact as well because now you have customers who are pulling out. We said two large states already, California and Illinois, but if I'm just a customer, I move to a new city and I'm looking to establish a bank account, I think people would now, unfortunately, for Wells Fargo, have to stop and think, well, I do I want to go with Wells Fargo mm-hmm. that's now been tainted by this or go with someone else? And so I think it's a good opportunity for fraud examiners to, to really look at what's going on and say, hey, if it can happen to Wells Fargo, it can happen to you. Don't get complacent and think fraud happens elsewhere. I really do believe if it can happen there, it can happen anywhere. Something that... I've noticed people talking about recently, I think we even talked about it at our annual conference, was tone in the middle. Because you saw here, this did come down from the top. I'm sure it went through the middle to have, I think the phrase they used was eight is great. You know, every customer should have eight accounts. That's what you're shooting for. That's your goal, which was completely... (laughs) That was the internal marketing pitch. Yeah, exactly. So for those people in the middle how important is that tone you know if you're getting something from the top to you know take responsibility for your role in the middle to pass on if there is a a strong tone at the top to keep it going rather than it staying in the middle and becoming stagnant there well i think it's being active because if we have a tone at the top but we're not really doing anything about it and that it's something that is pronounced at an annual or a quarterly meeting. But unless upper management, unless those who are in charge of these divisions are actually with the rank and file, those who are making those daily granular decisions, then it does stop there. Because I can, it's not, I wouldn't go as far as willful blindness, but 
if I'm at this executive level, I'm not always going to have the bad news filtered up to me. And because of the, the reason when you go in with um, you know, a lot of these aggressive sales tactics, if we don't meet it, I don't want to tell this division chief. I don't want to tell this executive because that's going to make me look bad. And so it's a matter of those executives, that committee, whoever it is that has responsibility, it's their job to go in and talk to those in the middle, talk to those who are just coming into the organization, to tell them what their expectations are. So that's communicated to them directly. So let's go on to some happier news. We've seen and we've been dealing with this in the States over the past year when we switched to our chip cards. We didn't fully switch to chip and pin, which is like many other countries, but we're on chip cards. But, you know, we're still seeing fraud pretty prevalent in credit and debit cards. Just as our technology moves forward, so does the technology of people trying to hack into those systems and those cards. So one of the recent news stories just this week was that a French bank was rolling out a card that the numbers would change at different intervals. So that way, whoever's trying to, whomever's trying to steal that card, the numbers would change, so it would make it much more difficult. So let's talk about where we're at with credit and debit cards and what these new innovative techniques can really do and how important are they going to be versus it doesn't matter how many things you do, you've still got social engineering as your... <laughs> You know, let's get into it the other way, which is how the target breach happened. Let's go the back end way through somebody and get all their information and and then steal a bunch of cards. Well, to your last point, the human element is always the weakest control. I mean, we can have uh, chip and pin. We can have um, the three digit on the um, security number changing almost hourly. That is a technology that can certainly help, but unless we've maintaining possession of that card unless we're doing something on our end as human beings and keeping it secure, it's going to be very difficult to to prevent that. I will have to say I'm disappointed that it's 2016 and we just now have terminals where you can uh, insert a chip card. Mm And, you know, having traveled internationally for the last 20 years, I love the European system. The the chip and the pin, I thought, was uh, was much more secure. They had that so much faster than we did. And then just, you know, when you pay in a restaurant, they bring the terminal to you. And so you insert yeah. the, the card right there. It never leaves your site. And so even now that we have chips, we still, at a restaurant, turn our card over to some stranger, and they walk off with it, and they can be gone for 10 minutes. And yeah. who knows what's going on. So I will say... I am disappointed. I realize that it's a huge country. We have, you know, our infrastructure. Anytime we change something, it's very difficult. But um, it, it even took, you know, five or six years just to get chip technology. Mm-hmm. And, and that is disappointing. But I think Bruce is right. I think um, that puts the burden on the consumer to mm-hmm. be careful and watch what you do, monitor your accounts. I will say that I do think the banks have done a, a very good job at staying up with technology on the back end, which they're monitoring for transactions and they can spot those quickly. I've had that happen several times and I thought the banks were, I mean, it was almost immediately 
I got a call or a text that said, here's a suspicious transaction. So on the back end, I think we, they're doing a, a really good job. I'm just disappointed that as a, as a country that we have not progressed farther in the, the chip and pin technology. I mean, this, the, the, these new cards that are in development and changing, I think it has a lithium battery in it, from what I read. Uh, this is just another tool, but you know, it's, it, the human element is still there. We can do it from that end, but then also the analytics uh, within these institutions so that if they're, the human element does fail and they did have that card number, they, you know, they start looking at anomalies in what your spending patterns are and locations. I mean, I've had this happen to me in cards that I have you know, between me and my wife and having the same number, but we're in two different parts of the world charging at the same time. Boom, it shuts that down. So... The last thing we're going to talk about is something very close to our hearts. <laughs> a lot of us have been working on the latest guidance that was released from COSO, and we were lucky enough to co-sponsor it. It's called the Fraud Risk Management Guide. And John, you were part of this task force working to get this going. One of our CFEs, Dave Cotton, played a huge role in getting a lot of this done. We're really excited about it, not only because of the guide, but we were able to work really hard here to put some extra tools together on our website. Free tools, we worked with EY on one of the data analytics interactive tools, and we're really excited to make this contribution and help COSO with giving this body of knowledge even more footing. Uh, so John, tell us what the latest guidance is and kind of how it came about. What was the need for it? Well, as you mentioned, a lot of the credit uh, goes to David Cotton. And, and just a quick shout out uh, to his firm, Cotton and Company uh, CPAs. He, his firm did a lot of work on this. He approached us um, about two years ago, and he had also worked on with us and AICPA, IIA, managing the business risk of fraud document. But it was several years old and needed an update. And so they've got a committee of you know, subject matter experts together. And our original task was to just update this guide. But then as we started looking at this, in the meantime, COSO had uh, issued this uh, enterprise risk management structure. And there's a section, Principle 8, that tells companies we, you should have fraud risk management as part of your overall risk management plan. And here are some of the tenets of that. On our website, acv.com slash fraud risk tools all together. So acv.com slash fraud risk tools. As Mandy said, they are free. We've tried to make them helpful, interactive. There's tests on there. You can go in, you can populate a heat map with your, mm -hmm. the fraud risk for your organization. And so the, the bottom line is instead of just a lot of words, mm -hmm. here you should look at this, here you should consider this. We, we tried to really, the, the mantra of the entire committee was to be practical and give some very practical step-by-step -step, uh, help and guidance. Yeah, and there's great detail within the guide. I mean, it's when you look at principle eight, we look at assessing the potential for fraud risk. It's part of a larger risk management scale within an organization. It also could be applied to government, nonprofits as well. But just being a component of it, 
that allowed us who at the association who do this on a daily basis, not just, you know, our research staff, but Dave and others who contributed it that are CFEs to really get into a very detailed analysis of what someone should put within their overall risk management plan. I mean, you keep in mind, you go back uh, just over 20 years or so with auditing standards, the word fraud finally started to appear. Well, I mean, this is since 2013. That's just now appearing within uh, the COSO uh, principles. And so, okay, we've got this now. What do we need to do about it? Well, and that's what we're doing with this guide is we're giving the detail. It's one thing to say that fraud is bad, but we're trying to go in and show you this is exactly what you need to do. You can look at the scorecard. It will tell you about your organization in a very detailed manner. Then you can go in and look at these heat maps to see exactly where the problems are within your organization from a visual standpoint. Then getting into very detailed analytics within certain components that you may be having, whether it's asset misappropriation, some bribery issues outside of the United States or outside of your country. It details of what you need to be looking for and then giving you that practical guidance to, to really have a strong, robust, not just a, a fraud risk program, but overall risk program within your organization. What are you hopeful for in 2017 as we you know, we're all preparing for next year. We're preparing for our conference. Um, a lot of people are about to do budgets. What are you hopeful is going to be on the horizon? Well, you know, what keeps me going and what always makes me hopeful is I spend all year long meeting with ACV members. And one of the major things I do here at the ACV is teach a, an exam review course. So these are people who want to become CFEs. Some of them are new to the profession. They may have been in there a while and they want to get their designation. And so it's, it's, I can't tell you how rewarding it is to stand in front of a, a classroom full of a hundred or more people and their job and their desire and their passion is to fight fraud. And when you're looking at these people out there, it really does give you hope that yeah. If we have more people out there, we have people take this seriously, they want to uh, prevent this, that yes, you know, we can do it. I'm hopeful to be asked back for another podcast uh, relatively soon so it doesn't take another year. We'll look to, at the statistics. Uh, and But that aside, I am hopeful that we and that collectively we as not only those in the anti-fraud industry, but those who are in these organizations and governments and other entities that we learn from what we're seeing in the news today and that we don't repeat it or that we don't allow it to be repeated as best as we humanly and digitally can. That's what I'm hopeful for. Well, thank you guys both. This was a very exciting time. I know you can't hear him, but he's always with us. Kevin Harris, our podcast producer. But we're excited we made it to 50 and we hope we'll make it to 100. But thank you both guys. Thank you, Mandy. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Mandy and Kevin. Thank you all for listening today on this 50th episode. You can find all of our podcasts at acfe.com slash podcast. And we will talk to you next month when we host our 51st episode.